Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a crisp and cloudy autumn morning here in the capital is Katie Howell. Katie is the CEO of Immediate Future, a social media agency based in Kingston-upon-Thames. Katie, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Katie. And uh, normally at this point in the programme, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that point of view, because the pandemic has proven to be such a huge challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves at immediate future, just to what extent has it affected things? I think it's been a really uh, roller coaster ride over the last six months. Uh, when uh, lockdown first happened, we actually had decamped to homeworking the week earlier after a suspected case in the office. But but for us, it was quite easy. We're a digital agency. Uh, we're all working from laptops. We already dial in from all over the place on a regular, you know, on a regular occurrence. So, so actually, we decamped one afternoon and we're back online in an hour. Um, but the roller coaster really came through the fact that social has exploded during social, you know, during the, the, the pandemic, uh, with a with a roughly forty percent increase in use on social media, and for our clients, which are are, are recognisable brands, that has mm. meant they have to work harder to get noticed, and when they need to be more sensitive and more careful about what they're doing, and we have had to adapt really quickly campaigns that would have been normal during normal times into campaigns that were sensitive to what was going on. Mm. Um, and that has meant agility on the side of our team. And as a creative agency, which is used to kind of being in the office together for a large portion of the working week, where those wonderful creative serendipitous moments happen, we have had to recreate the functionality of that as well as support our staff through that very rapid fire change from a a group of people who like to work face to face. It is challenging, isn't it, sort of having to do everything from a distance and lead remotely in that sense when you are sort of used to that sort of human social interaction that I think to a degree we took for granted pre-pandemic. Adapting to that side of things, to doing everything sort of remotely, including the everyday contact, just how was that for you you personally? Uh, I hate it. (laughs) I'll be really honest with you. (laughs) I think uh, I'm a networker. So, and I love those moments where you bump into someone you know or somebody you met at a last, uh, conference maybe a, a year ago even. Um, I, I kind of thrive off the energy of being around other people. So I have personally found it quite difficult. But there's also been another rather wonderful side to this, which is um, we have a stand-up call in the mor- every morning at 9 a.m. Mm. and we have a, a final day call at 5.15 
to make sure people stop working, otherwise they will drift into working late in the evening. Um, and in that in that process, I have got closer to my staff because I, I'm, I'm actually speaking to them more than I probably would have done uh, had we all been in the office. Weirdly, it's a more formal way mm. of doing it. So, so it's been actually there's been some wonderful sides to this, which is getting to know people. You know, our culture has definitely thrived through this as a consequence. Um, and then the other side, which is that the the, the, ice, the feeling of isolation uh, as a senior leader can be quite um, challenging, uh, added to which I am perimenopausal, which means that hormonally I'm a bit all over the place as well. So I have had to take a, a little bit of a sidestep every now and then for some self-care. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget just how important that is, isn't it? Because in the hectic everyday world of running a business, even pre-pandemic, it can get a bit much at times. But let alone when you're having to sort of spearhead your way through a crisis like this. I mean, it can be a lot. So sometimes as a leader, you do have to step back because when it comes to looking after mental health and well-being in your leadership role, it is as much about your own as that of those around you as well. Because if you're falling apart at the helm, then that's going to sort of rub off on everybody else. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And it, it was ma- slightly magnified by the fact that, that, that I lost my holidays um, mm. and because of the, the seriousness of the situation, then decided probably quite foolishly at the outset to uh, continue working. Uh, and so it took a couple of months before I realized that this was not a good thing. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's been a massively good learning curve, to be honest with you, because it's forced me to look at my working lifestyle um uh i have an obsessive workaholic sort of nature i'm very driven um and the intensity of working from home and being so wholly focused on a screen for a large part of the day has meant that you know i have been forced into a scenario to look at alternatives Mm. to look at ways of self-care that go beyond just you know ending a day and sitting in front of the TV. And that that has been really remarkable because it's, you know, I, I'm in my fifties. Behaviour change is, is 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 less in there's less inclination for, for behaviour change. There is certainly a, a health and well being and fitness change in me and the way that I now approach my beauty, things like exercise, getting out in the fresh air, all of these sort of things. And that's certainly positive because um, that self-care, as you say, is hugely, hugely important at a time like this. And mental health and well-being and the importance of that have certainly been amplified by the pandemic. And what we have seen as well is when it comes to the debate about what is to become of our working practices, whether we'll see working from home becoming the way of things in the future or whether we'll see workplaces such as office environments returning in vogue. There are mental health and well-being arguments on both sides, aren't there, Katie? Because working from home can help with the work-life balance but it can also blur the lines between the workplace between your home setting and also you do lack that sort of human contact as we've gone over already very briefly Um, and with all of those considerations in mind um, what do you think the workplace of the future is really going to uh, to look like and what elements of the lockdown period could become permanent parts of the way that business works do you feel it's an interesting one i can't think for all companies but for a digital creative agency uh, creative, like I mentioned earlier, creativity is a 
is a very collaborative way of working and we you need to get out the house mm. in order to you know whether it's to you know visit the Tate gallery or whether or not it's to you know see an advert at bus stop on your commute um, as well as getting that bouncing of ideas from one person to another which is much more challenging mm. in a digital environment so I think we will probably move to the hybrid model um, we're still you know chatting to our staff what they're comfortable with but but in the main is looking at you know avoiding the monday morning horrendous commute and the friday night battle to get home by taking monday and friday as our days for working from home and then all being in the office midweek and i think that might be a better way forward um how we then negotiate that with our landlords might be a different thing altogether but from our perspective I don't think we can be wholly digital because it stifles ideation mm. in a way that I, even I'm quite surprised at. Yes, it's it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach, is it, the work from home? There are some things that you do have to sort of be in a collective environment for, and sometimes you just can't get around that. I think that's absolutely right, and it is something very important to uh, to consider. Um, just moving away from the uh, the doom and gloom of uh, COVID-19 episode <laughs> slightly and taking a step back way before the, uh, the pandemic, um, you've been, of course, running your own business now, Katie, for quite some time. I think it was 2004, wasn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong, but the business has been standing since. Um, I was interested to understand what sort of was behind that decision to sort of take on your own leadership, go into business for yourself, and um, what sort of made you really think that that was going to be the way for you? So quite, that's an interesting question, because in 2004, nobody thought of social media as social media. Mm. There was no such thing. It was blogs and MySpace and message boards. But I was working at a big ad agency at the time, and I thought, this is, this is amazing. This is a great way for us to connect um with our with our customers um and so set up immediate future and but never but i set up immediate future i'm an accidental agency owner scott Mm. because i never actually planned on setting up an agency what i thought was this is a great idea let's talk to a few clients and see whether or not they're interested in doing something more in you know groups and 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 communities Mm. And, and of course, it blossomed and I found myself hiring staff. But I have learned how to be a leader over the last 16 years. Mm-hmm. There's no two ways. And I have made some terrible mistakes. Um, I, I have misunderstood how leadership works and then learnt my lesson and learnt better ways of doing it. The one thing I would say to anybody looking for, for advice or support on leadership is that you just never stop learning. I, I must listen to so many podcasts and watch so many videos and read so many books and I'm constantly looking for new ways in which to improve how I can build a better business and how I can support both my staff and our clients and the world around me, um, you know, our, our local environment in Kingston, um, as well as a broader um, world around us so that I can lead from the front and part of the thing I think naturally I do is I lead by paying it forward mm. so I give away a lot of my support and time and advice for free which seems counterintuitive but in my view there is 
that the best people in the world are those that you, you who go out and help other people regardless, and and I would like to be one of them. Um, so the advantage of of doing all that learning and constantly constantly honing my leadership skills is that when we came to the, to the pandemic this year. I was able to pivot a lot faster and move a lot faster and understand the things that I needed to do to support a team so that they uh, can perform at their very best. Um, and, and that was really, I really felt uh, myself lean back on all the knowledge I'd acquired over the years quite quickly um, to, to, to meet the new challenge. There are so many really important things to actually take away from that. The first point about leadership being a process of trial and error and learning. I think that is so important because we cannot hope to develop without making mistakes and embracing them as learning curves. It is a continuous process of learning and development, even when we're in leadership roles, because we are never a finished article. And you're right, there's so much value in paying it forward, offering advice, expertise, a little bit of mentorship as well to young people out there um, free of charge as well, because that is ultimately what inspires the next generation of emerging leaders, which is exactly what we're all about as well. And um, just thinking about the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders, KT, if you will. There are so many young people out there, aren't there, at the moment that may well be looking at the ongoing situation, um, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and quite downhearted, perhaps, at what it's doing to their employment prospects. And as a business owner yourself, having made a success of uh, your venture, what message would you give to those youngsters to really get them to pick their heads up, look at the opportunities and really embark on that road to success now? I, flexibility would be my my watchword. Uh, I came out of university um, in the middle of uh, the 80s recession. I have lived through two further recessions, um, one of which happened while I was running this business. Um, flexibility is the watchword. And what, at one point in my early 20s, I actually set up a really teeny tiny business, which is really just me freelancing, called Ad Hoc Marketing. Back in the day, I thought it was so clever. <laughs> but the reality is what I could do, I couldn't get a full-time job, but I had mortgage to pay. So uh, what I did was get lots and lots of uh, part-time jobs um, in the marketing field. So I could keep my hand in, but doing a day here or a day there. And it, do not get me wrong, it was terribly hard work, but I kept my career on track as a consequence. So I would say be flexible. What's really interesting is that I have already been approached by a number of students and young people who are asking to do a little bit of flexible work to keep their hand in. And we have always um, managed paid internships. Uh, we, we don't do voluntary work. People don't volunteer free to work with us. But um, but we are where we're able to, we are handing out a little work here and there um, and helping people find whatever their gifts and talents might be, even if we're not a, in a place where we can offer full-time work. And now thinking about the uh, the future, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Katie, because I'm conscious that we are beginning to run short of time. Um, we know that it's going to be a tricky winter coming up shortly, um, but if we could pretend that we have a crystal ball at the moment and look through the uncertainty, where is it that you would like immediate future to be this time next year? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved in this climate? I think we could head for growth. 
I'm nervous about 2021 um, for the very short term future because of Brexit and the and the recession, the likely recession. Uh, because our clients tend to fall back a little bit on marketing um, and marketing spend, so there, there's a there's there's a lot of unknowns in that. But social media right now, for all its many many faults, is not going anywhere. Um, and it is a fantastic comms channel for most companies, brands, and, and organisations. And so, I am hoping that we can actually grow because because of our longevity, we have that expertise. Um, I don't think I am ever going to be the sort of person, if I'm honest with you, Scott, who's ever going to retire fully. <laughs> so I suspect way into the future, I shall probably still have my hand in uh, immediate future, if not in several other companies. <laughs> Certainly going to be a very interesting time and it looks as if there's plenty to be getting on with over the course of the next few months. And I'm loving that um, sort of ambitious vision of trying to grow the business, even in the uncertainty, Katie, because positivity like that is so, so infectious. And we could really use a dose of it as well, just to keep morale high during this most uncertain of times. And I think, you know, just given the amount of variables that there still are in this and what might happen coming into going into next year, sorry, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at, in future and have you back on the programme with us just to see what is going on behind the scenes and how that vision of yours is starting to take shape. Thank you, I'd love to. I thoroughly welcome that opportunity as well. It's been really enjoyable having you on the programme today to share your views. And um, most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again as well, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on as well, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, but let's just hope that it's not going to be too much longer that we're stuck in the rut for. You too. I'd also love to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning into the podcast today as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Katie Howell, CEO of Immediate Future, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair while he was in charge and serving as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His exploits in politics saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time but to others around you and the sector that you're working in that will be really important do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the covid19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level 
the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London-centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack. Uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.